Objections Overruled 1 and 2 audiobooks are produced by Lutheran Public Radio and are made possible with support from listeners like you. You can contribute to the production of future audiobooks at issuesetc.org support. Look for Objections Overruled 3 in December of 2023. Christianity is Anti-Intellectual Angus J. L. Manouge Christians are called to make full use of the gift of intellect. Education has always been a part of Christian history, including both catechesis and academic study. University scholarship developed out of Christian monasteries, leading to careful study of both God's Word and secular disciplines. This Christian value of intellect allowed genius to grow in science, philosophy, and the arts. Today, sophisticated secular people often dismiss Christianity as childish superstition, something that no well-educated person should take seriously. They may even suppose that Jesus' own words support their view. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 18, verse 3. This is a serious misunderstanding both of Christ and of Christian teaching about the life of the mind. Christ calls us to love God with all our minds, Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, and His Great Commission is a mandate for universal education. This education focuses on the primary sources and equips us to understand God's two books, Scripture and Creation. Christianity teaches that the world is governed by the rational laws of its Creator. It also teaches that man is made in the image of God and hence capable of discerning these laws. These teachings fostered genius in philosophy, science, mathematics, technology, and the creative arts. Loving God with All Our Minds When Jesus told His disciples to become like children, He was not telling them to stop thinking. He was telling them to be humble, Matthew chapter 18, verse 4, having an honest understanding of their own limitations. St. Paul clarifies that in our fallen state we have only partial knowledge and it is distorted by sin, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 11 to 12. While we are to be infants in evil, in our thinking we should be mature, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20. Indeed, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are called to be highly critical thinkers, not conformed to worldly patterns of thought, but transformed by the renewal of our minds, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. This enables us to critique worldviews that oppose Christian teaching, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, and to see how all reality holds together in Christ, Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. General Education Recalling Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, Christ taught that all human life depends not only on material sustenance, bread alone, but also on the Word of God, Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. His Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 to 20, included a call to teach all people what he had commanded. This applies to both rich and poor, male and female. In response, the early church offered catechetical training to both men and women newly converted to the Christian faith. Starting in the 4th century, cathedral schools educated both boys and girls. In addition to teaching Christian doctrine, these schools equipped pupils with the seven liberal arts. These included the universal tools of learning, the trivium of grammar, logic, and rhetoric, 
and ways of understanding the created order, the quadrivium of arithmetic, music, geometry, and astronomy. Far from being anti-intellectual, Christianity has been the main driving force behind education at every level. Martin Luther, 1483-1546, was a great champion of universal public education. He recognized that a major reason for the corruption of the medieval church was that ordinary people did not know the scriptures. This meant they could not hold the church accountable when it promoted errors like salvation by works and indulgences. So it was important that children be taught to read and that they were soundly catechized in the fundamentals of the Christian faith. While grounding in the Word of God was paramount to maintaining the faith, Luther also emphasized preparation for our earthly vocations as citizens. In 1524, he wrote to the councilmen of all the cities in Germany, exhorting them to use public funds to support Christian schools. He argued that treasure, walls, buildings, and arms were not enough to maintain a civilized city that city's best and greatest welfare, safety, and strength consist rather in its having many able, learned, wise, honorable, and well-educated citizens. Luther's Works, Volume 45. Higher Education Scholars agree that the earliest universities, such as Bologna, 1158, Paris and Oxford, circa 1200, Cambridge, circa 1209, and Padua, 1222, grew out of the monasteries. The monasteries preserved and copied manuscripts of both scriptural and secular texts. As variations were found in different versions of the same work, it became necessary to find the most reliable text. This tradition of research carried over into the first universities. There was a renaissance rebirth of learning when scholars abandoned the scholastic ideal of endless commentaries and called for a return to the original sources in the original languages. The doctrinal disputes at the time of the Reformation further reinforced the need to discover what God's Word really said. If Scripture is our highest norm and standard for judging doctrine, we cannot defer to secondary authorities. We must avoid eisegesis, reading meanings into the text of Scripture. Instead, we must practice exegesis, drawing the meaning out of the text itself. The Reformation emphasis on sound exegesis extended to other areas as well. We should find out what even pagan classical authors like Homer, Plato, and Aristotle actually said. And it was widely recognized that God was the author not only of Scripture, God's Word, but also the book of nature, God's world. Modern science arose from the project of reading the laws inscribed by God in His creation. Great scientists like Johannes Kepler, 1571-1630, and Galileo Galilei, 1564-1642, rejected the scholastic approach to natural science. This approach used preconceived philosophy to deduce what the laws of nature must be because it denied God's freedom to choose different laws. We cannot know in advance how God chooses to govern His world. We must look and see, which is the basis of the modern empirical method but we can be confident that the laws we discover will make sense because God is rational. The same logos, rational principle, with which he governs the natural world is also present in the mind of his image-bearers. Thus, the assumption of all research universities today that the empirical method can discern coherent mathematical laws of nature derives from theological assumptions. 
God, a free and rational being, is author of these laws, and human reason can discern them. The great atheist cosmologist Stephen Hawking, 1942-2018, wrote in Brief Answers to the Big Questions that we live in a universe governed by rational laws that, through science, we can discover and understand. He was unconsciously drawing on these theological assumptions. Philosophy, Science, Mathematics, and Technology Not only did Christianity promote education at all levels, it also fostered genius. In the 17th century, many of the greatest thinkers were Christians. Their belief that God created a coherent cosmos led to a grand synthesis of philosophy, science, mathematics, and technology. For example, René Descartes, 1596-1650, developed his philosophical analysis of mind and matter both to defend the existence of the soul and God and to provide a foundation for physics. He developed analytic geometry, which makes the connection between algebra and geometry, most familiar to students today in Cartesian coordinates. This system allows one to explore the geometry of matter in motion. It is essential to future advances in physics. Descartes himself proposed laws of physics later adopted in modified form by Isaac Newton, 1642-1727. The inspiration for Newton's belief in coherent, universal laws of nature was explained in his essay, General Scolium. It is the theological conviction that this most elegant system of the sun, planets, and comets could not have arisen without the design and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. Some other extraordinary Christian polymaths around this time included Wilhelm Schichart, 1592-1635, Blaise Pascal, 1623-1662, and Gottfried Leibniz, 1646-1716. Schickard was a Lutheran pastor, a professor both of Hebrew and Oriental languages and of astronomy, and a personal associate of Johannes Kepler. On the basis of correspondence with Kepler, including a diagram, it is now widely believed that Schickard created the world's first mechanical calculator, although no working example survived. It was capable of addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. Schickard likely developed this device to assist Kepler in his laborious astronomical computations. Although not a full computer in the modern sense, it had no memory and could not be programmed, it was an important step in the development of automated problem-solving machines. Independently and shortly thereafter, Pascal developed a similar device, the Pascaline, which could only add and subtract to help his father's work as a tax collector. Leibniz made further refinements, and his stepped reckoner served as the standard calculator design for the next two centuries. Yet Pascal's interests went far beyond technology. His most famous work, Pensée, Thoughts, consists of notes he intended, before his early death, to develop into a systematic defense of the Christian faith. It is a profound examination of the paradoxical nature of man. Pascal argues that man is a riddle that only the Christian faith can decipher. Man is wretched because he falls short of the moral standard that he knows he should meet. Yet he is also great because he is aware of that fact. He discerns that the God-shaped infinite abyss in his being can only be filled by God. This is precisely the claim of the Christian faith. It is why God became man in Jesus Christ. Pascal also developed modern probability theory. 
In addition to its value for modern statistical sciences, Pascal saw its importance for the defense of the Christian faith. When considering which religion's scriptures bear the marks of being the true word of God, Pascal understood that the Christian Bible is unique. It makes many independent prophecies fulfilled in the life of one man, Jesus Christ. Since probabilities multiply, their joint fulfillment has very low probability, and what crowns it all is that it was foretold so that no one could say it was the effect of chance, from Pensee. Pascal believed the evidence decisively favored Christianity. In his famous wager, he argued that even if it did not, one had nothing to lose and everything to gain by believing. There is nothing to gain but everything to lose by disbelieving. Leibniz also had extraordinarily wide interests. With Newton, he was co-developer of calculus, essential to modern physics. But he also defended the Christian faith. Baruch Spinoza, 1632-1677, had developed a fatalistic system in which everything happened as a necessary consequence of the divine nature. This led to the unorthodox conclusions that miracles are impossible, there is no human free will, and evil cannot really exist. Leibniz countered that God's will could include both norms, regularities, and exceptions to those norms, so that laws of nature and miracles can coexist. In his Discourse on Metaphysics, Leibniz also explained how humans can have free will and hence retain responsibility for sin. But since God knows every choice we will ever make, he can turn even evil choices to good ends, as God used Judas' betrayal to save mankind through Christ's atoning sacrifice. The Creative Arts Christianity fostered genius not only in analytic areas, but also in the creative arts. For example, Albrecht Dürer, 1471-1528, who was highly sympathetic to Luther, and Lucas Cranach the Elder, 1472-1553, a personal friend of Luther, created magnificent works of art to support the devotional life of Christians. To combat the human tendency to idolize images, Cranach developed the Wittenberg style, in which minimalized, flattened images serve as emblems or illustrations of something greater than themselves. In his portraits, Cranach combated the ideal of the flourishing Renaissance man. He depicted our conflicted nature and showed the biblical truth that we are simultaneously saints and sinners. J.S. Bach, 1685-1750, regarded as one of the greatest composers of all time, developed extraordinarily sophisticated multi-layered music that sounds beautiful, lifts the human spirit, and conveys profoundly Christian themes. Craig Parton argues for Bach's greatness in Christian Liberty, the Arts, and J.S. Bach. Bach understood the depths of his personal sin and the fallenness of the world, mastered whatever medium he attempted, saw all music as pedagogical, and reveled in his freedom in Christ. He thereby found the very best means to communicate Christ to the people of his time and of all times. Conclusion Christianity is not anti-intellectual. It promotes education at every level and fosters genius in philosophy, science, mathematics, technology, and the creative arts. Many of the intellectual advances that modern secularists take for granted would likely never have occurred without the Christian faith.